the old adage, you build it, they'll come. It truly did happen in game because you had a supply-demand imbalance. And the problem with that is it's not a competitive environment. You can do no wrong. And what happens when you don't have a competitive environment? You don't have innovation. There's no need to innovate. You build it, they come. And so it's taken a while. Now it's a dog-eat-dog, very mature industry, mature markets. And what we're now starting to see is more innovation. You have a lot of gaps. And gaps are in service, back in. You have disparate systems that don't talk to each other, whether it's food and beverage, to retail, to entertainment, to gaming. And it's just enormous opportunity. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Bobby Soper, former president and CEO of Mohican Sun, one of the largest entertainment and gaming companies in the United States. Now, Bobby started off initially as a lawyer before moving into the role of CEO, where he had the opportunity to lead an incredible operation with 4 million square feet, 29 restaurants, three entertainment venues, huge opportunities to look after 35,000 guests and 7,000 team members in any given day. He learned a lot about what it took to lead great teams through mentorship, guidance. And today, he's a nobody, chairman of our travel and tourism board, and helping us build companies to innovate and disrupt the future. So before we learn a little bit about what Bobby's doing today, let's go back to hear more about how it started for him. There's a lot of key moments, you know, when you look back at your career and look back at all the accomplishments and all the challenges too, but probably the one, you know, key, it's not a moment, but I think key attribute as it relates to my growth and where I sit today, you know, not only as someone in the hospitality business that operated and developed properties, but just basic leadership as a leader of an organization in in various capacities throughout my career. Really, I attribute to having a great mentor. I had a, a gentleman named Bill Villardo, his dad, opened up Caesars in Vegas. Bill was one of the few guys in the gaming and hospitality space that led in the East Coast and the West Coast. So when he grew up in the industry, it was either Atlantic City, Las Vegas. He did both. He reported to Donald Trump directly. He reported to Steve Wynn directly. Bombastic personalities. And yet it was a guy that was very humble, understood relationships, understood the importance of respect at all levels. Uh, he always got his hands dirty. And I got to learn from that. Not many do, especially at that time where you had an industry with a lot of egos, a lot of big personalities. And so when I look back, it was having that type of mentor guide me, mold me when I was very young. And if it wasn't for that, I don't think I would have evolved and do what I'm doing today. Well, this is fascinating. And I love talking about mentorship on the show because I'm sure even today, like a lot of people reach out to you or they'd be afraid to reach out to you. How did you build that relationship to be mentored? Because I think this is really fascinating, right? Is 
making the connection with the right person that, you know, you can obviously see something in these leaders, but what do they see in you or how do they help them see in you that you have that potential? How did that sort of relationship in a way grow? How did it kick off? Yeah, again, I mean, I find myself blessed and fortunate. You know, sometimes you have to be lucky. You always have to work hard, but sometimes you have to be lucky. In my case, I had served as general counsel for Mohegan, just really young, only several years out of law school. We were growing as an organization. We became the first Native American tribe in the United States to raise money in Wall Street. I got to spearhead that effort and worked with the CEO at the time, who became my mentor, working with him every day, making those trips to New York on Wall Street. And then ultimately, having more responsibility delegated to me from him just because of the faith, right? And the time he put into it. It was just a fortunate set of circumstances for me as a growing organization. I took advantage of it. You know, I put in a hundred hours a week. Yeah, yeah. No question about it. But I knew you rarely get that opportunity to leverage that. For me, that's another lesson that you just don't know. Maybe it's once, twice, three times in your life that you get those opportunities, a great mentor or great job opportunity or great investment opportunity, whatever the case may be. And that's exactly what I did. I was just fortunate to have that opportunity. I went for it. And then that relationship grew over time. I received more responsibility over time. The rest for me was history. I think it's really important, though, that you're talking about all the different aspects of it. Because I think sometimes people feel like they just, they can reach out to anyone and hopefully ask them to be a mentor. But really what you're talking about is putting yourself out there, doing hard work and demonstrating excellence, right? And then through that effort, more opportunity comes because people see the capabilities within yourself. And I think that's really important because so many people are looking for great mentors out there. But they don't often know where to start. Sometimes they can be actually very close to you in the company you're working in or looking for people who are doing something that you are aspired to or inspired by. And figuring out how you can create those opportunities to work with them and learn from them by doing the work. And they learn about you from seeing the quality of your work. That's where those relationships can grow. It's a really important part. Similarly for myself, the best mentors I've had have actually been people, even sometimes I didn't even think would help me, but I got to understand what they were doing differently um, in companies I worked with. Spending time with them and working with them is actually where I learned the most rather than asking them to go for a coffee and then downloading all, all their esteemed knowledge, right? Like you see people's real behavior when you work with them. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Barry. And I get approached all the time, almost sort of this formal invitation, will you be my mentor? And I'm super humbled by that, right? But the truth is, generally mentorship is more organic than that. It is more organic. It's probably a better approach if you want to seek an opportunity is, do you mind if I spend some time with you or follow you? Or one day, that type of thing seems to work. And from my perspective and what I learned, and this may be the most important aspect of having a mentor like I had, is the measurement of my success is based on how well others do that I work with or report to me. That is my measurement of success. And I'm very fortunate because a lot of, a lot of the folks that, that I hire, whether they're C-level or VPs or directors or managers or even line-level team members, have grown and become very successful as their own CEO 
whatever the case may be. To me, that is the best measure of my success, not, not how much money I make, not my job title, none of that. It's really how well others succeed and did they learn from me, right? You know, that's the most important measurement. That's a great insight, Bobby, right? Because you're making me instantly think now about where I was responsible for the development of others, either in a company or within companies I'm in at the moment, and the success being how well they're doing. It's a good sort of mental arithmetic even to do, right? Because I'm thinking times where people succeeded and what did I do and times where people struggled. I actually got frustrated with them for struggling. Why did I do that? Why wasn't I thinking more to help them? So someone like yourself, you know, you say we're legal counsel, went on to be CEO. What were some of the sort of systems or techniques that you would try then to start developing? Maybe you had to unlearn yourself as somebody who was sort of coming up in the company and eventually leaving the company now. What were some of those transitions you had to make from even a legal counsel to being the CEO? I'm always curious to like, what were some of the keys you noticed in yourself that you had to unlearn? Good question. As general counsel, you're really managing transactions. You're managing the process, right? As a leader overseeing, well, at one point, 20,000 team members, right? You're managing people. And I don't even like to say that, but in reality, it's, it's human capital, right? And so what is it that creates alignment? What is it that maximizes and optimizes all that human capital? And, you know, what I learned, and again, part of it was from mentorship, but part of it is literally getting into the trenches at all levels, putting on, you know, in my case, in the casino industry, putting on the valet uniform or the EDS uniform or the table games uniform or the, or the beverage server uniform, right? And literally spending time, it really does come down to relationships, right? It comes down to understanding people, respecting them, showing to them that you you are not above them. And that's the, the most valuable education too. What you learn in the office, you're going to learn a lot in the office. The balance sheets and the P&Ls and the KPI reports, all that is, they're good. You have to read them, you have to understand it. But probably the best education is, is when you're in the trenches. And that's what I learned. And it took a little while to learn that because when you start off as a, transactional attorney, securities law, which is my background. Yeah, 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 with, yeah. Yeah, you're with other attorneys and, and people like you. You have zero comprehension of that. But to me, that was probably the, the most important experience that I've taken with me. And fortunately for all those that have worked you know, with me, they learned that as well, right? Empowering individuals, consensus building to the extent you can but still having accountability across the board, right? If others don't believe in the same core values that you have, with your, you and your organization have, they got to be accountable for it, right? And so those were, the, to me, the tough lessons to learn, but sticking to your guns. Yeah, this is fascinating, right? Because one of the techniques we talk a lot about in technology product development is customer development. And, and this notion about, experiencing the world through your customer's eyes or understanding their pain points or going and experiencing the problem that you're trying to solve firsthand. 
it's a really important part to build an empathy for designing uh, great products. You know, and I always thought the, the example of that inside a company is sometimes thinking as your the people that work there are sort of like they're your customers, especially as the CEO. How can you best help them solve their problems, support them, need them? And one of my favorite shows of all time is Undercover Boss, where CEOs sort of pose as like different roles in a company that people don't know who they are and they go go and do those roles. And yet what you're describing is sort of a mix of all of these worlds together, actually experiencing and spending time being with the people who are doing these very important parts of your business, working with them side by side with them, them seeing you visibly there, actually doing what they would do so you build empathy and understanding and a relationship with them. They mightn't be your as deep a relationship as someone you work with day to day, but they see you trying to build relationship and understanding, which is only going to make that bond stronger in a company to say, wow, Bobby's down here actually seeing what it's like to operate the restaurant, seeing what it's like to when guests arrive, that they have good experience. Seeing what it, and that builds, I think, team ultimately. And you actually get better information because it's sort of the pulse, I guess, of what the company is happening rather than the KPIs and dashboards that are all lagging indicators that told you what happened, you can almost sense the areas to work on. No, I couldn't agree more. And there's almost this line of sight that when you're in the back office, you don't see. So just as an example, you know, to hit home this point a little further, one of the processes that we implemented at the casino property was anytime there was a power out. So like technology drives everything. And so when the slot machines go down, people can't cash out, they can't play, it becomes a very difficult situation, very service challenge situation. So literally any VPs on site or above hit the floor. We're doing the service recovery. You may have your suit and tie on, but it goes back to one, showing all the other team members that you feel their pain and you're going to help deal with their pain, as well as the guests, the customers uh, can see that as well. And then the other thing is even beyond, you know, having leadership in the trenches in the most difficult times, in those examples, I try to get some, you know, some of the information technology guys, the ones that aren't at that moment fixing the problem, but they never see the problem. They hear it from the marketing director or they hear it to see it live, right? Again, it goes back to that empathy. They can understand it. So there's a lot more collaboration, a lot more respect as it relates to this sort of alignment amongst all the different areas. It's not only alignment with leadership and, you know, every level of the organization, but it's alignment within the organization of different areas. And it's so critical. We always think we don't have time, but the reality is, you know, from our standpoint, getting in the trenches, understanding the problems, it solves a lot of problems from happening. You mentioned one thing that I dive into is technology drives everything. You spent many years in the hospitality space. I know you've seen the benefits technology can offer, and and I know you're a strong advocate of the frustrations that where it's not being used to leverage and make the most out of the opportunities or the experiences that we can create for customers, right? And the way we met, in fact, is by you coming on to chair our hospitality and travel advisory board really for Nobody Studios. So tell me a little bit about what that piqued your interest to first of all say, right, I, I see this trend happening. I want to do something about it. 
what were some of the the areas that really brought that pain point to you that you saw in the hospitality space that you're like we need to innovate we need to go faster and how you're starting to sort of bring some of that to life at the moment sure no absolutely so coming from the gaming industry understanding with a little context of how it grew and why I think there are a lot of gaps in technology, right? It's a young industry. It really only goes back to the 70s. It, I mean, Vegas has been around a while, but that was the only game in town. And then you had on the East Coast, Atlantic City. But it's really only the last, we'll call it three decades, where you saw a proliferation, Indian gaming, uh, riverboats. Yeah, and, and today you have 42 states with actual casinos. But now you have online. So it's a young industry. And when you have a lack of supply, but you've always had demand. So demand for casinos and gaming has existed for hundreds of years, but you haven't had legalized gaming. You have an undersupply. What does that mean? That means those in the space, in the industry, are going to do very well. And they're going to credit themselves for doing. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. The old adage, you build it, they'll come. It truly did happen in game because you had a supply-demand imbalance. And the problem with that is it's not a competitive environment. You can do no wrong. And what happens when you don't have a competitive environment? You don't have innovation. There's no need to innovate. You build it, they come. And so it's taken a while. Now it's a dog-eat-dog, very mature industry, mature markets. And what we're now starting to see is more innovation. You have a lot of gaps. And gaps are in service, back in, you have disparate systems that don't talk to each other, whether it's food and beverage, to retail, to entertainment, to gaming. And it's just enormous opportunity. And now gaming companies are large, they're somewhat bureaucratic, so it makes it even more difficult for innovation. And so for, from my standpoint, you know, I've now been an entrepreneur outside sort of this corporate world for five years, and I see this tremendous opportunity for innovation. and. And, you know, yeah, Nobody's Studios is a perfect, to me, just a perfect scenario, right? You have all these minds in, in different fields. Many overlap in hospitality. You have this great bastion of resources of just intellectual human capital. Yeah. You know, supercharged almost, right? The supercharged venture studio. I like the model. I invested in it. And then the more I got to spend time, I, I got to get involved in this, right? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be a part of the organization and, and chairing the uh, Hospitality Travel Advisory Board. It's great to have you, but also great to hear the history of a little bit of that space that you sort of grew up with. I see that in so many different uh, industries, actually, where the big players get complacent. Their success, as you say, thinking of it as a greater demand than supply and grew fast and didn't probably grow in, in the most innovative, competitive way, which is interesting, right? What that spawns. So here we are now, like looking ahead to what the future hospitality looks like. And as you say, our hospitality board in the studio is just sort of, to be honest, it blows my mind, the caliber of people that we can bring together, folks organizing global tours for superstar, famous musicians, people like yourself who've built hotels and sites all over the world. We've got like people who've created, I'm just, well, it blows my mind anyway. It's an endless stream of talent, as you say. But what are some of the areas you're noticing, even in that group, 
that people are getting excited about. Where do you see innovation coming in that industry and maybe how we can bring it to life in nobody? Yeah, look, I think digital is the future, right? And gaming, again, if you look at the history of the U.S. market, is a little different than some other markets. When you look at Europe, right, which is always focused on online, less on land-based, we sort of did it the other way around. But the reality is when you look at the future generations and beyond the Generation X and where we're going with Z and millennials and Z and, and, and moving forward, it, it really is online. It's mobile. And the gaming industry has to adapt. There's hurdles because there's regulatory hurdles. And again, what I've talked about before, it's a young industry that you know needs to catch up on innovation. But I think there's just such a, a tremendous opportunity here to not only catch up with other industries, but on the online side, you know, whether it's booking events and booking your hotel room. There's a lot of OTAs out there, not a ton of innovation out there, right? When you look at leveraging what's going on, whether it's in the meta universe or through other forms of currency and tying into loyal programs, you know, whether it's the crypto, leveraging blockchain. Gaming is perfect for that. We need transparency. You know, all the KYC, AMLs, stuff we have to do, we're, we're worse than a bank. Gaming industry is worse than the banking industry, as a, you know, having something that's real time, which is very important for our, for guests in the industry, in all hospitality, having something that's transparent and secure, tremendous opportunity there. And the regulators like it as well. I've talked to a number of regulators of a friend. Of course, yeah. Yeah, former chairman of Nevada Gaming Board. That kind of innovation is right. That's going to take some time. Adoption takes time. But I think what we're going to see, you know, is an adaptation to the new taste of these new generations. And we're getting there. We've got new payment systems out there. We're starting to see wireless. We still use old currency. It, it took forever to get rid of those heavy coins and slobbish. And a lot of the, the old timers said, you can't do that. They need to hear the noise of the coins dropping. You can't go for what was called Tito, ticket in, ticket out. You can't go to a, a non-coin system. And it took five years, but now there's no coins anymore, right? The same's going to happen with online and digital, right? So That's such a great example, Bobby, you know? Like you say, it's a young industry and it's an evolving industry, and yet it still faces many of the, I don't know, like misnomers that we see with innovation. Like where there's a guard that believe, no, we have to hold on to how it's done today. And people advocating for, well, there's a better, maybe more efficient, maybe more innovative, maybe even better experience that we can create for customers and just that endless battle. So as someone who's trying to lead that charge, what are some of your tips for others when they're trying to bring sort of new innovation into spaces and have to sort of fight the antibodies that are like, no, no, we, we need to stick with what we've always been doing. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because I think if you were to talk to the right people at the organizations that face these challenges, you will learn a lot. And I think one of the traps, people think they know what others want or will want, but often they don't ask. And so I find that all the time. I get pitched all the time with a new online gaming product or, you know, a new retail product, a new sports wagering. 
product, whatever the case may be, hotel booking, product, whatever it is, right? Nightlife. I'm dumbfounded often. Like, I don't really see you're fulfilling a solution or this is going to be dated in one year. Who did you talk to? Well, yeah. nobody. <laughs> so that's number one is just make sure. And it's so fundamental, but it's amazing how often you see that it's not the case, right? It's so fundamental that you make sure you talk to the potential end users, whether it's a B2B or B2C product, whatever it is. You have end end users or potential end user. Really testing whether or not it even makes sense to begin with. I find that to be probably the most overlooked, even though it's the simplest, most fundamental thing. Just again, outside of the corporate world, is in spending the last five years as an investor and entrepreneur myself in developing things, I would say that's number one. Yeah, well, it's very funny because it goes back to the point you even were describing about your early days as a CEO. And the most important thing was not to go out and tell people how to do their job, was actually to go and experience how others were doing their job and learn from them. I think it's just a great lesson, speaks to you know, your values and mindset about how to go about problem solving is to, is to go to where the problems are and understand them with the people who are experiencing them. And that's where the, the solutions lie is understanding and asking people, how could this be better? It's a great tip for whether you're leading large enterprises or you're an entrepreneur is, yeah, uh, be humble enough to figure out like what are the answers rather than trying to know them all. is always a good one. And it's helpful too. And this is, again, somewhat cliche-ish, but my mantra, and I think all those that worked with me felt the same, is we only hire people that are smarter and more experienced than us, right, in their respective areas. And so when you go to them, and hopefully they do the same thing, and they should do the same thing, right, because you hired them with the same sort of core value alignment, it's just this huge snowball effect. And when it's time to get their ideas, you know you're going to get them. And by the way, that holds true for anticipating problems. So when we try to develop our products, whether it's myself, whether it's through Nobody Studios, you have to anticipate the future. You can't live Absolutely. in the past. No, but you, no, no. Yeah, you still need that input, right? You still need to understand what their current problems are in order to anticipate the future. And the more skilled, educated, the more humble they are, the more valuable feedback you're going to get in developing what you're trying to develop. Yeah, no, great, great lessons, Bobby. Thanks for sharing. So the last question I really was going to ask you is then for yourself. So what are you excited about as you're looking ahead? What's sort of the new trends that are lighting you up? What we're seeing now, we have this post-COVID periods, which we've learned a lot, right? It's, you know, allowed us, I would say, some opportunity to pivot in other areas. My perspective in hospitality space, I think you see a lot of movement to convenience online, you, uh, definitely involving taste. You know, you have less patience, less with the, the new generation. And so everything needs to adapt to that. From my standpoint, I've also focused on what's transformative, what's the future. So I focused some investments on green energy, for example. That's yeah, outside yeah. You, you know, even though there may be some relationships, I'm in plant-based foods, for example. Those types of things that I think, you know, looking three, four, five years ahead, where we're going to be. You know, at the end of the day, 
understanding that generations have evolved. The baby boomers to our generation, you know, we've all you know, evolved and had different tastes. But I think the change is far more dramatic, even from my generation to what we're now, you know, the next generation that will have real disposable income is very, very different. And hospitality, gaming, service is going to have to change with it. You know, that's sort of my focus. Yeah, no, I love it. And I love to hear you're still anticipating the future and making a few bets on it as well, which is always fun. Bobby, it's been a pleasure to have you in the show. Thanks for sharing lots of your great insight around mentorship, leading people, building companies and products. It's been a joy. Thank you very much. Very my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.